Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How are you today? Well, I feel like we should get this out of the way so that everyone is prepared. <laughs> I think we are both really sick right now. We are both really sick and sniffly. We both have a hot honey and lemon drinks. Yeah, well, mine was honey and, and ginger wine, oh. actually. So you've gone for the um, alcoholic approach. I've gone for the enormous amounts of painkillers approach. I went for what I had in the house because <laughs> I couldn't face leaving it again just after I arrived home in order to get a lemon. <laughs> that is fair. So we're both sick, but we are both very dedicated to the cause of <laughs> antipopes. Yeah, we just wanted you to know. We wanted you all to know <laughs> how how dedicated we are and how impressive we are for just sitting upright yeah. right now. Although I will admit I'm not doing this very professionally at my desk like I normally would. I am sitting on the daybed with my mic <laughs> pop- propped up on my knee um, <laughs> because I had a desperate need to be comfortable. <laughs> that is fair. I think that the anti-popes would disapprove of that very strongly. Oh, and I find that pleasing. I feel like the current actual Pope would be all for it, though, so... I think he's probably okay ba- with bounces out. Actually, I think no, he is. Isn't he a Jesuit, aren't they, like, very um, pro-poverty and chastity and modesty and not really being that comfortable? Well, in that case, he's not going to approve of anything that I say <laughs> or do, ever. So no. it's hopeless. Okay, so we've mentioned it a couple of times. What is our question today, Janina? Our question today, Emma, is what is the deal with anti-popes? It is, which came from my friend Bob and is possibly the best question that he could possibly have asked me. I'm really excited about it because I had never heard of anti-popes before. It sounds like it sounds like the the like second in command to the antichrist or something in a horror <laughs> film like like something that would appear in Constantine or something and like Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves would have to fight it but apparently that's not what it is so that's not what it is although I'm sure that there are some theological writings that would argue that they basically are but an anti-pope is someone who is declared pope or who declares themselves pope but illegitimately um mm-hmm. And the way that you know whether they're an anti-pope or a real pope, which is what I'm going to call the canonical popes, is whether they are recognised by the current Catholic Church housed in the Vatican. Does that mean that if the sort of hierarchy of the Vatican all change tomorrow, that you could potentially say, actually, all of the popes you thought were popes were anti-popes and we are legitimising the anti-popes? Technically, yeah, And that, that would just mean that's how we define them. Basically, yeah. So they release a book every year, which is called the Annuario Pontifico, mm-hmm. which is like a nice book. I say a nice book. It's like 3,000 pages. And it's basically stats about the Catholic Church. So here's how many bishops there are, and here's how many female baptised Catholics there are and broken down by country and so on and one of the things that's included in that is the chronological list of every single Pope so if you're included in that list then you're a real Pope and if you're not in that list then you're an anti-Pope. Does this mean also that I could just declare myself a Pope tomorrow and then I'd be officially an anti-Pope and there's nothing anyone could do to stop me? Well I'm gonna break it to you now Janina that you Mm -hmm. unfortunately do not meet the two (laughs) basic 
requirements of a pope. Is that being male and Catholic? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You are missing maleness and you are missing the Catholicism. (laughs) Oh, beans. Really, no one has been a non-cardinal and elected pope since Urban VI, which was in like the 13th century. So you'd probably Mm -hmm. also have to be a male and a Catholic quite into Catholicism (laughs) to the extent that you have become Mm -hmm. a bishop and a cardinal. Which these days means you need to go to seminary and things like that. It does, yeah. And it means you have to spend your life dedicated to... Basically, cardinals are like the administrative council, like a kind of privy council for the Pope. Mm -hmm. All I know about cardinals is Cardinal Richelieu from The Three Musketeers. Yes, and and what did you learn about cardinals from that? Well, that that they're evil, obviously. (laughs) You know what, actually, you're going to find out that they are quite bad in a lot of ways. Fabulous. Or at the very least, they they have a lot of power. (laughs) You know how I love having my suppositions that I've derived solely from fiction confirmed in the real world. It's my favourite thing. Yeah, and on, but honestly, I was having a wee think and I can think of any times when cardinals really appear in fiction when they aren't being evil somehow. Yeah. Oh, there's also Cardinal Wolseley from King Henry VIII fame. Yeah. Who I also believe was evil because I first discovered him in Philippa Gregory's The Other Boleyn Girl, uh, <laughs> in which he was kind of uh, going against Anne Boleyn at every turn. Yeah, and therefore evil. Um, the only one that I could come up with, because obviously there's like, so there's the new Robert Harris and they're basically evil in that. Mm-hmm. And then there's loads of Dan Brown novels where they're just well evil. Mm-hmm. But there's a really good Italian film. This is going to be my recommendation of the week called Habimus Papus. We have a pope, which is about the conclave to elect a new pope. And they elect a guy and he doesn't want to be Pope. So he runs away. Fair enough. I wouldn't want to be Pope either. But I would want to be anti-Pope. This is the thing. It's an interesting (laughs) dynamic. See, I think that's because being anti-Pope sounds very cool. Whereas when you're Pope, you have a really long list of jobs, basically. The formal job title is... Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, Successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the Vatican City-State, and Servant of the Servant of Gods. That seems excessive. Yeah. Like, you're already the Pope. Why do you need to be all of that as well? (laughs) Well, because Pope basically just means Father. Does it? It comes from Papas in Greek, Mm. which kind of morphed through latin and into english as pope and became patriarch in the east so when you have the patriarch of the orthodox church it's exactly the same thing as a pope mm-hmm. so he's like yeah. father of catholic sure well that's that's nice yes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you've got that as well dad of catholics it's a complicated job title and there's a lot of responsibility but When you are anti-Pope, the thing is, it sounds very cool, like you just spend all of your time standing around saying that the Pope is bad. But basically, (laughs) it's you go, no, I'm the true Bishop of Rome and Vicar of Jesus Christ and successor of the Prince of the Apostles. You are are a heretic. (laughs) And quite a lot of the time, as we shall see, the real Pope was kind of exiled off somewhere and the anti-Pope was hanging out in... Italy or Avignon, wherever the papacy was living at that time, which we shall also come to, because the papacy 
We now know of it as living in the Vatican, and the Vatican City being the centre of the papacy, but that's actually really new. The Vatican City wasn't formed until, like, 1920s, and they didn't really move into St. Peter's until the 17th century. And after, mm. by that, by the time you get to the 17th century, everyone's kind of stopped doing anti-popes, really. Sure, because the last one was in the 15th century, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Unless you are one of the people who believes that everybody since 1968 and the Vatican II Council has been an anti-pope, who are very angry. Uh- <laughs> These people are fascinating. And from what, and I didn't really understand it, that, I mean, it's, it's obviously just conspiracy theorists ranting on the internet, and they're always a little bit difficult to understand. Is it because <laughs> they are opposed to the like political stances of the current Vatican? They are opposed... Setup? to the Christological and theological stance of the current Catholic Church as found in the Vatican II Council introduced a lot of reforms for Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church and for mass. Basically became a little more progressive and inclusive? Yes, very much so. And some people don't like that. (laughs) And in fact, it's very specifically made kind of moves towards being more inclusive. And one of the things that the kind of hardline Catholic conspiracy theorists have a problem with is the fact that they made kind of official statements of respect towards other religions. So they said that they officially would respect and work with other non-Catholic religions, which the people who believe that the current Pope is an anti-Pope but think was fundamentally heretical because for them the purpose of the Catholic Church is to constantly be defending and promoting the Catholic Church as the true church in capital letters. Um, And any sense that the Catholic Church respects other church therefore is saying that other churches are somehow equal and therefore is undermining the true church. Right, sure. So that is one of the major issues that they have. So they're essentially religious fundamentalists. Yeah, way that you don't often like you normally. I, I normally associate religious fundamentalists with, I guess, like Southern Baptists and Bible Belt style yeah. at Protestant churches. But it's kind of comforting to know that you also get them in Catholicism. I mean, everyone's got them. <laughs> it's a very strong belief in the in the power of the church as the true church and as as the kind of bride of Christ and mm-hmm. the foundation of the religion that and they do not like anybody else getting any respect they would much like prefer it if the catholic church was still trying to stamp everyone else out it's quite fun though because they believe that the current vatican establishment is an like an anti-pope and an establishment that props up an anti-pope but because it's the vatican establishment that gets to decide who's the pope <laughs> and who's the anti-pope they can never win no it's they like can't a um, beautiful catch-22 that they found themselves in <laughs> Yeah, so they, these people believe that the current Pope is an anti-Pope, but unfortunately for them, their opinion means nothing because the only person who matters is the Vatican. Only the, can- mm-hmm. the cardinals in the Vatican can make a decision as to who is a real Pope and who is a non-real Pope, which at one point in the 14th and 15th century, there were three popes and there was a significant problem for about 300 years as to which of those three popes was going to be decided to be the real pope. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so this is uh, this is after the fact, like looking back and thinking who was really in charge. Yeah, basically there were three lines of popes, which we will get to in a bit because it's the Great Western Schism is like the big papacy crisis, mm-hmm. and. What happens is you have one set of popes in Avignon in France, uh, one set of popes in Italy, and then a random third set of popes in Pisa, Mm -hmm. who all claim to be the real pope. And the only way that they work it out is that there is a council and they all just agree to step down and then everybody elects a fourth pope. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So So everyone loses. Yeah, so because of that, they had quite a long discussion as to like none of them were officially declared to be illegitimate but none of them were officially declared to be legitimate and so everybody just had to sit around and go well which one was the real pope then we either have a 40 year gap where there was no pope or we have to agree as to which line we're going to recognize as popes um Mm -hmm. and eventually they agreed that the popes in rome would be the real pope I'm going to assume for my own pleasure that it was just geography-based only. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Basically, they just decided that the Avignon papacy was difficult, uh, <laughs> even though it was about almost a century's worth of the papacy being in Avignon. But I feel like we should go back to the beginning before we get really to the Great Western Schism, because the Great Western sure. Schism doesn't make any sense unless you really <laughs> understand. Because I can already hear people going, but why was the Pope living in France, Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is due to some complicated political reasons. Okay, so you basically get two types of antipope. You get theological antipopes who disagree with the theology of the real pope, Mm -hmm. and you get political antipopes who, whereby basically the papacy became a political office and had an awful lot of power and so people fought to control it. And the second is by far the most common. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. The early Christians... So this is where I found out about um, antipopes because I was doing early Christianity and I was reading all about Novation who is the first official definitely existed and was definitely an anti-pope anti-pope mm-hmm. and he got really mad he was a really hard line like you would not invite him to any parties just bastard <laughs> like he wrote really fun letters my favorite kind of early Christian because he just writes these scathing letters which are just extremely hyperbolic And it's just really fun to read. But the earliest ones are basically all occur in the middle of persecutions when the emperors were persecuting Christians and then they were trying to work out theological issues. They were just trying to work out even what they believed about the nature of Christ and what they believed about what the church was and what they believed about the nature of God. And even the Trinity had not been officially worked out yet. So we're really in like the second and third century. So the Trinity wasn't officially agreed to be Catholic doctrine until the 4th century and the Nicene Creed. It seems like a a dangerous time to want to be Pope. Yeah, it does. I mean, it makes you a target and most of them do get exiled or martyred. So the first kind of possibly wasn't really an anti-Pope, but the first official, according to the Catholic Church, anti-Pope is Hippolytus, who got really angry over modalism, which is what the nature of Christ is, and then got even angrier with the next pope because the (laughs) pope calixtus was basically letting any 
Christian from any sect in. So mm-hmm. early Christianity is just tons of sects, like tons of different groups of people who are Christian but potentially have very different beliefs about things. Which makes sense because the whole thing was really being organised by people wandering about and then writing letters. Like there was no, yeah. no centralised hub to decide what exactly. Christianity was supposed to be. And obviously it's predominantly underground because um, it's being persecuted. Yep, so get killed. <laughs> yeah. So there are lots of different sects and Calixtus basically is quite happy to let other Christians who were not necessarily part of what we would now consider to be the Catholic Church uh, mm-hmm. into the Catholic Church. Like they could leave their sect and join his sect um, and he would like give them a blessing and say that they were absolved of their heresy. And Hippolytus was like, you can't do that. You have no right to do that. To which Calixtus basically said, how can you say that the church doesn't have the right to do this? And they got into a big fight and split mm-hmm. in two. And Hippolytus was potentially an anti-pope. But then because this is in the middle of a massive persecution, they both, everybody just got exiled to the mines. Uh, <laughs> sure. Where, as far as we can tell, Hippolytus and Calixtus realised that having a big fight about the power of the church when the church was living in the mines was a bit useless and seemed to have made it up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's it's not the best time for this fight. There's bigger things going on. Pretty much, yeah. Like maybe we should just be fighting for the survival of the yeah. the religion rather than worrying about who believes what about what the church can do and maybe if if people are just like if anyone who decides they believe in jesus runs the risk of getting martyred or exiled maybe we should just help them (laughs) and try and yeah but then you get you know in much the same way as people now believing that if you believe in jesus in the wrong way you are a heretic they are like oh well you you aren't really a christian because you believe that Jesus was human and not divine or you believe that he had he had two natures but they were distinct rather than being mixed it is so fascinating to think about the the, this very very early beginning of the church which you just it never really occurs to you yeah so that is what the earliest anti-popes were about they were about that kind of argument then everybody getting into kind of very niche and it's basically just christians talking to each other like a very small group of people arguing with each other about theological issues about issues Mm -hmm. of belief but all of that kind of changes quite significantly after christianity becomes a legal religion and then after it becomes the dominant religion in the west sure then the papacy becomes a big political tool Mm -hmm. and controlling the papacy becomes something that a city-state can have over another city-state. Sure, so sort of in the same way as like in Tudor England, certain prominent families had the heir of the king and that gave them power over other prominent families. Yeah, exactly. It gives you an edge. Like later on when it becomes a really Roman thing, you do get lots of like the Medici and the Borgia like fighting each other over who get because it just gives them power over the other family. Although you don't get any good anti-popes during that time, unfortunately. Well, that's a shame. But you do get like, you know, all of them bribing each other and trying to stuff the Cardinal Council with their their family members so that they Mm -hmm. can have a pope because it's an edge over somebody else. But before that... 
it's a political tool and it is also a kind of military tool because for a long time the Pope is someone who controls an army and is at the head of that army and can fight off people who are attacking Rome and it can be deployed to help out whoever they like. So is this the Pope at the head of the army in that he would ride out? Sometimes, in Literally. the earliest times. Not so That's much. That's amazing. But, you know, <laughs> you have had popes who have rode out in the head of an army. Brilliant. Um, late, makes you very happy. Later, when you get to the Crusades, there are big arguments about whether the Crusaders are being led by their kings or whether the kings are just the marshals of the Pope. Okay, sure. So are the Crusaders are going to Jerusalem under the banner of the Pope and the Church, which would make the Pope like the head of the army and would therefore make the King of England and the Holy Roman Emperor a subordinate to the Pope? Or are they marching as representatives of the Church and the Pope is just kind of a figurehead? And that sure. causes a lot of arguments. <laughs> <laughs> That is one of the things that kind of eventually leads to the Great Western Schism as to does the Pope have political power over the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor and the King of France and the King of England and what can he force them to do? Mm -hmm. Like the big schism begins with Boniface VIII basically declaring that he has supreme power, he has, has unum sanctum, like, and that everybody is subordinate to him. Every, if you're a member of the church, you are subordinate to him and you have to do what he tells you to do. To which King Philip of France says, <laughs> we absolutely are not. Mm-hmm. You are, he basically accuses um, Boniface of being impertinent. I mean, it is pretty impertinent to say that you're <laughs> just in charge of everyone. It's pretty good, though. <laughs> And it basically says, like, I am the official supreme spiritual authority, therefore I am the official, like, political authority as well, and you will do as I'm told. Yeah, Philip says, absolutely, I am not, how dare you? To which Boniface says, well, I excommunicate you then. (laughs) You are not going to heaven. Because excommunication is a really big deal. Yeah. By the time you get to the Middle Ages, like, and where church is the centre of the community, saying that someone is excommunicated is pretty bad. It just is basically a a kind of exile from your community. And saying that someone is excommunicated when they're the head of a country is basically saying to everybody in the country, like, you no longer really have to pay any attention to your king. Mm -hmm. It kind of like, it's kind of amazing to me that it took as long as it did for a king to just declare himself the head of his own church. (laughs) Honestly, Henry VIII is amazing. Like the fact that he did it. Everybody else just set up their own pope. Mm -hmm. Although to be fair to Philip, instead of setting up his own pope, he's just sent in a band of men to break into the Laurentian palace and just beat the shit out (laughs) of the pope. (laughs) Um, that's not the most civilised way to go about things. But, it was you know, not. It's probably, it probably effective. Quite a crisis. That is how the papacy ended up moving to Avignon because Avignon, although it is now in France, was more separate from the political power in France at the time than Rome was. So he basically ran off to Avignon to get away from Philip <laughs> and then set up a little court there. Which went well. That's the kind of thing that I have been reading about for the past couple of weeks. Is just, you would be surprised at how many just popes, before we even get into antipopes, mm-hmm. 
like it just get beaten up or I mean <laughs> murdered <laughs> like a quite oh to be fair quite a lot of the ones that get murdered get murdered by anti-papes well that seems reasonable I mean yeah what's a better way to become pope than by killing the current pope basically yeah although the most horrible one I think I read about was a pope killing an anti-pope which was not the earliest particularly but one of the first when it starts to emerge into kind of proper political fighting that has absolutely no theological dispute attached to it at all. There's this kind of period where theological disputes are related to geographical disputes. So, like, over here we have this group of people in Naples are very into monophysitism. cannot pronounce that word. Whereas over here in Alexandria they're very into diophysitism and therefore they are going to fight over who gets to be the Pope. So it has geographical connotations, but there is a theological core to it, or a Christological core. Whereas the one of the first in the 8th century that has just nothing to do with theology or anything at all is Stephen ended up being the real Pope. But there were two other people. There was Constantine II and a guy called Philip who literally got made pope as far as i can tell some lombards turned up and went do you want to be pope and he was like yeah all right and they went you're pope now and he went cool and then they went oh there's two other guys who also say they're pope and he went oh i'm out (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's no one doesn't seem worth the effort um and that was the end of the lombards but the tuscan nobility so like basically tuscan aristocracy a supporting guy called constantine because they mm-hmm. want the papacy to be Tuscan. And you have Roman aristocracy. So it's all just like little groups of families, basically, supporting Stephen. And they just get into like actual battles. They're writing to kings, like they're writing to the Frankish kings in France. They're writing to Constantinople, both trying to declare them, like get the letter there first that says that they are the Pope in the hope that people will agree with them. Mm-hmm. There are like full on battles where they both draw up lines and go to war like on outside of Rome to battle it out and eventually Stephen's side because he's Roman wins so they arrest poor old Constantine then they kind of put him on a horse with weights like holding down his legs so he can't move naked Mm -hmm. and parade him through the street and like pelt him with stuff then they blind him and then put him on trial that all seems Highly unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah. And then they have a Lateran Council, which is a council at the Lateran Palace, which is where the Pope lived until, like, the 14th century. They kind of pull him up, make him say he's really sorry for saying that he was the Pope, and then pull his tongue out and kill him. Wow. Yeah. That's no fun. It's no fun. They've tried very hard there by making it really horrible to be the Pope that loses basically. To discourage people from declaring themselves Pope. Exactly. Yeah. And it lasted about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and they tried, like, the, that council ended up putting in some place, some stuff, like, essentially to prevent the aristocracy from having a say in who was the Pope. And that just made no difference because all it did was it made that the, the aristocracy became cardinals. Yeah. And, you know, the, the harder something is to get, the more people want it in general exactly and therefore the more it is worth so then it gets really good with the holy roman empire 
And the Holy Roman Empire is a whole five episode thing in itself. <laughs> like, because it just keeps going. So the Holy Roman Empire lasts for like a thousand years and is somewhere between an empire and a connection of kingdoms, depending on what time you're looking at it. It officially begins <laughs> with the crowning of Charlemagne and he is crowned by the Pope. Okay. And that's in 800. So he's a Frankish king who basically marches across, or basically down into Italy, and declares it his, and then makes the Pope crown him as emperor. And he then passes it down. And so he elevates the Pope in that way and gives him the power to invest the crown. By demanding legitimacy from the Pope, he gave the Pope legitimacy to crown kings. Exactly. Um, Right. And he gave him the power to decide who has ultimate political power in Rome. And thus begins like this point where you need the Pope on your side. <laughs> but the Holy Roman Empire lasted really until like the 19th century. Never hugely popular in Italy, which is where the Pope was all mostly based. Italy always wanted to be independent from the Roman Empire, <laughs> weirdly. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because the seat of the Holy Roman Empire was in what is now Germany. Sure. Why not? <laughs> There's so much writing about what the word and the term Roman means after, like, the 5th century. Like, what does Charlemagne mean when he says, I am the Roman emperor? What any of (laughs) them, like, what is, I don't know, Charles II of the Holy Roman Empire saying, I am the Holy Roman emperor? What does he mean by Roman of that? Anyway, so they always want to be independent from what is effectively their own emperor. (laughs) And the, I mean, I would too if it was just someone who swanned in from France. Yeah, but obvious, for fairly obvious reasons, the Holy Roman Empire sort of needs Rome to always be a part of it. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it's, you know... Although technically the Byzantine Empire was still calling itself Roman for a very long time as well. It's useful to have Rome in your empire if you're going to call yourself Roman. And the I, pain- I imagine that's true, yeah. <laughs> and the papacy becomes like a, a point of contention in that argument basically in this struggle between nationalist interests of wanting to be independent and Mm -hmm. imperial interests led by the emperor who need rome to be part of them and need the m the pope to be on their side and supporting what the emperor does Mm -hmm. so for a long time the pope was basically picked by the Holy Roman Emperor. Sure. But you get lots of good anti-popes. There's one guy who's anti-pope twice during this period. The ball's on him. Well done. I know. He's just real. Got to hand it to you. The best thing about it is everybody hates him. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, he's got no friends. But basically, Pope John XIII dies and the Holy Roman Emperor at the time is Otto the Great. So he does what he normally does, what they always do. He invents his own Pope. He says, you, Bish, you're the Pope now. And that's Benedict VI. And then Otto dies pretty much immediately afterwards. At which point the nationalist Roman aristocracy go, this is our chance. Like, while the next emperor is, like, installing himself, we can get out the papacy back. So they kidnap Benedict Uh and run him off to a castle and hide him away and then elect their own one called Boniface. Loads of them are called Boniface, who is an anti-pope. So he's a non-official pope. So the kidnapped one is the real pope. Yes, so that's Benedict. Right. And Boniface VII is the bad pope. 
Uh, he's Great. anti-pope. So they pick him. He's just basically a rich dude with a lot of confidence. Uh-huh. So the emperor is like, no. What have we talked about? He sends some troops over to sort the situation out. As soon as the troops turn up, he just runs away. Boniface goes, ah, <laughs> and runs away. But not before murdering the real Pope. Right, well, good. I mean, he's been, he's been through a bit of trauma, I guess. I mean, you're being very nice about him. He just kid- He just turned up and kidnapped the Pope and made himself Pope and then murdered him in the first sign oh, of trouble. Oh, I thought the kidnapped Pope murdered the anti-Pope. I got it no, flipped. No, the anti-Pope yeah. murdered the real Pope. So Boniface sure. murders Benedict. It's very confusing. Their names are almost identical. They are very <laughs> similar. I'm also pronouncing Boniface wrong, but saying pronouncing Boniface just sounds stupid. So I refuse yeah. to do it. That's fair enough. So he murders the real Pope and then steals a load of treasure from the palace. I mean, in for a penny. Like, just filling carts with gold (laughs) and just runs away to Constantinople where nobody can touch him. There's, like, lots of rioting. Everything is terrible, but Otto eventually calms everything down. So this is Otto II. Calms everything down, installs Mm -hmm. another imperial Pope. Like, a Pope who's his mate who is, I'm really sorry about this, another Benedict. Too many. It's too many Benedicts and Bonifaces. They've all got the same name. It's infuriating. They, like, history really did not make it easy on anyone who wanted to learn things. They didn't. If you're trying to study any kind of powerful men, or women for that matter, why couldn't you have just given them, (laughs) just one of them a different name? (laughs) And it's the same with this. They're all called Benedict or John or Boniface or Clement. Or sometimes a Gregory. <laughs> it's absolutely Greg just, furious. Greg just sneaks in for fun sometimes. Yeah. Go, go or on, one Greg. of my favourite podcasts is the Rex Factor podcast, uh, which is about kings and queens of England and Scotland. And there is a point at which I'm like, look, I just genuinely don't know which James we're on right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. But... There were too many. We're about to get another Charles. We've already had two of those. I mean, at least it's only two, to be honest. One more yeah, Henry, I'm going to fall over. Yeah, that's very, very fair. Anyway, so Benedict the Seventh is now the real Pope. And then Boniface is hiding with all of his money in Constantinople. And that is fine for ten years. Mm-hmm. But then Benedict Seventh and Otto the Second, the Holy Roman Empire die at a very similar time. Well, that's inconvenient for both of them. It is very inconvenient. And so... Once again, the Romans go, well, hey, we can have our papacy back. And you know who is still technically the Pope? (laughs) It's Boniface. So he comes back with uh, kind of a Greek army, kind of storms into the palace, kidnaps, and then again murders his second Pope. He's got a taste for it is the problem. He does. So he has now, he considers himself... Like, when he's writing about it, he basically considers himself to have been the real exiled Pope for this whole time. And to right. to have just killed off, like, two... Pretenders. Other, two pretenders, yeah. Well, what, according to the official story of the church, has happened is that he has just murdered two popes. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's just marching around murdering popes. And he makes himself Pope again. Unfortunately, he turns out, and I know this is going to be a surprise, to be horrible. <laughs> 
<laughs> you shock me. I know. And to just be awful to everybody and to use his power to basically hurt people. And about 11 months later, he mysteriously died and nobody's really sure how, but he may or may not have been murdered by his own cardinals. Perfect. <laughs> and the reason that they think he may have been murdered by people is that the response of the Roman people, who are at all levels very, very invested in who the Pope is and who invest a lot of their Roman identity in the Pope being Italian and on their side. They mutilate his body and drag him through the streets. Great. Um, Yeah, not not a popular guy then. No, and so then the Holy Roman Emperor comes back in and goes, it's all right, lads, I've got a friend of mine who can be Pope again, and everyone's like, all right, fine. It's very convenient that they all happen to have a friend just... (laughs) kicking about in the back cupboard look you're not a good king if you haven't got at least five friendly bishops ready to be pope (laughs) at the drop of (laughs) it's very important you know and you need to be able to have the bishops so that everybody knows that you're proper and holy and good and all the Mm -hmm. rest of it yeah. But basically that happens for about two centuries worth of the imperial line, basically the Holy Roman Emperor being technically in charge of who is the Pope and sure. choosing, except every so often the Italians go no. Or every so often the there is a reformist who has been mates with the Holy Roman Emperor for a couple of decades and then gets made Pope and goes, oh, I've got some ideas. Uh Yep. And I think actually that non-church people, so if you're not a bishop, you don't have any say in church issues. So for Mm -hmm. example, you, Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, I don't think that you should have any say in theological matters or in church matters or in who is a bishop and who is not a bishop and who, what I, Pope Gregory VII, do. And when Henry doesn't like that at all, Gregory excommunicates him. They've got one trick that they can do, and they sometimes do really. you've just got to pull out your one trick. It's a good trick. It is a very good trick, sending people to hell. <laughs> I mean, they use, for something that is quite strong, they do use it a lot. Like, <laughs> But it's really all they've got. <laughs> Against an emperor or a king, it's really all you've got. Henry, pleasingly, was not thrilled about it. So he just got all his own bishops, who were still his friends together, and went, right, Mm -hmm. we are the synod now, us here in this house. Which one of you wants to be Pope? I mean, it feels like as good a way to pick one as any. Yeah. And so then his friendly bishops, one of them gets made anti-Pope. They march on Rome and exile poor Gregory VII. And he has to go into hiding against Clement, who is hanging out in Rome being an anti-pope for a really long time. Well, I mean, at the time, I guess he was hanging out being pope, but retroactively he's been declared an anti-pope. Is that how it works? If someone someone who declares themselves pope and takes over the papacy, then they are a pope because the papacy decides who's pope. Yes, so you can only really be declared an anti-pope retrospectively so or if you fail to ever actually get into or if like poor old philip you own don't even get to the point where anyone (laughs) (laughs) poor old philip doesn't even get a pope name his name is philip and (laughs) his pope name is philip like (laughs) 
But yeah, so he is being Pope and living in the Papal Palace and doing all of the Pope stuff that Popes do and blessing things and giving Papal Bulls, which, by the way, is the most misleading name for a thing ever. Why? Uh, Because a Papal Bull is just a Papal Declaration. Right, you don't actually get a bull. There are no bulls involved. There are no horns involved. There are no... It's very disappointing. It is. And when I first learned about them when I was younger, I, and I assume that everybody who learns about them has this a little bit, they go, and then the papal bull, blah, blah, blah. And you go, ooh... They've got like a gold <laughs> bull or something. And I had read the Epic of Gilgamesh and it was like, ooh, is it like a godly bull? Is it a heavenly <laughs> bull? Because in Gilgamesh, a bull comes from heaven and rampages and it's really cool. It's not. It's just a, it's just a letter. That is deeply disappointing. And it's just a letter that is like signed with the papal seal and it comes like the... One of the words for seal is bulla. Well, language it, is endlessly disappointing. It is. No, it's not. I love, I love language and it's, it's bonkers tricks. But, but every so often it does something like that where it makes you think there's going to be a golden bull and then it turns out to just be a letter. Yeah, it's very disappointing. Yeah. So anyway, real anti-pope Clement is hanging out being pope. Meanwhile, Gregory is dying and then like, there's kind of a secret underground group of cardinals and bishops who are electing other popes in exile just so that there is a continuous line of other popes, basically. They're being anti-popes at the time. But Henry basically loses some political power due to boring, you know, empire stuff. Um, mm-hmm. as a result is not able to protect Clement or send him any troops or anything so the other line of popes come back and kick out Clement and reinstall themselves and then retroactively everybody went yes we agree with Gregory rather than with Henry but at other times they would agree with the emperor over anybody else I mean, uh, I guess you're afraid of becoming an enemy of whoever's in charge at any given time yeah but then in the previous one in the 10th century with boniface and all the benedicts the official line goes with the imperial line rather than with the possibly because the anti-pope the now official anti-pope did all the murdering Mm -hmm. they do tend to knock you out of the running they do tend to lean towards those who are the more moderate and less murdery i can Uh, understand that i sympathize with that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean you can't argue with it yeah i'm always gonna pick the least murdery person to run a church yeah i mean that's just me it's just my opinion <laughs> you big softy <laughs> yeah so that's basically what happens with antipopes for a really long time until you get to the great western schism in 1378 which is so okay this is also quite good mm-hmm. because the thing that i really like about all of this is so much of it is personal it is yeah. political but so much of it comes down to clashes of personality mm-hmm. <laughs> between like one guy and another guy that then cause these huge political and church issues that just have enormous consequences so basically what happens is that as a result of Boniface VIII and his fight with Philip and then him going off and hiding in Avignon. He sets up a kind of court there and it looks loads like a court. And the Italians absolutely despise this. They feel like they have been abandoned. And there is also this feeling that the court in Avignon is too luxurious. And there's all these kind of letters, particularly from Italian intellectuals and 
aristocrats talking about how the court in Avignon has like left behind the proper church and it has become too luxurious and is too decadent and there's too much gold and shininess and everybody's having too many nice dinners and they're also giving <laughs> how out, do they? yeah and they're also giving out indulgences too much in exchange for money so they're forgiving sins sure. that they shouldn't be forgiving that they don't technically have the right to forgive in exchange for the cash so they can have more nice dinners and gold outfits. And so the Italians feel like personally abandoned and they also feel that everything is going wrong once they've left Italy, basically. Sure. So when the Avignon Pope dies, the Italians riot, essentially, and demand that they are given, if not a Roman Pope, then at least an Italian Pope and that they Mm -hmm. want them to come back and live in Rome and they throw just an enormous fit and because they still have a significant amount of political power in Rome they basically win Mm -hmm. and they force the cardinals they put this political pressure on the cardinals to choose an Italian who is like Duke who is just a bit of a wastrel (laughs) sounds ideal yeah um, he's just a bit mediocre basically up until the point but he's like the most useful Italian around and I kind of assume that the cardinals thought that they would be able to at least control him right like they've given up that he is an Italian but they can probably still get him to do what they want like they're not going to concede too much power to him so he becomes Urban the fourth which is a good name unfortunately the power of being pope just instantly goes to his head and he stops being (laughs) mediocre and becomes just a wang like just like becomes like this mental dictator who starts screaming at people is throwing things is being personally abusive to everybody around him is Mm -hmm. just horrible so all of the cardinals because he just spends all of his time shouting at them and basically uh, making a hostile work environment in the middle of summer about a year after he has been elected they say that rome is too hot and they're going to go on a group holiday okay (laughs) and then they all run away to avignon and then they pick themselves a new pope (laughs) sure i mean that's what you do when you've got one that's just not working out for you yeah, Christ knows what they thought was going to happen. Presumably they thought that this would put political pressure on Urban and he would go, I've done this wrong, I resign, and they would be fine. But that didn't happen at all. Instead, Urban was like, how dare you do this to me? Created a load of new cardinals to be in his now somewhat depleted cardinal court mm-hmm. and started sending those out to all of the kings in Europe going, these people are being terrible to me. But this is a big problem for the kings and emperors around the world because basically both popes have been legitimately chosen by legitimate cardinals this isn't a situation where non-church people have got involved right Uh, this is a situation where the only people who are allowed to choose the pope have picked two right and neither of them will back down and so it makes things difficult it does because you can't then say oh you're not legitimate because they're both technically legitimate Uh so what this becomes is a massive political crisis because each of the big kingdoms in europe basically picks a side so on the one side you have the pope in avignon who is clement the seventh yeah another clement (laughs) stop it stop Um, it ancient history at least it's not a benedict (laughs) I say that, but we've got another Benedict coming up. So, of course we do. Of course so, we do. 
in the Avignon papacy is supported by obviously the French, by Aragon, Castile, uh, Naples, and Scotland. Which all, these all sound sound rubbish now. Just reading them like, <laughs> oh, Scotland and Naples, <laughs> but they were big deals in the 14th century. Mm-hmm. But England and the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically all of Central Europe. And like Poland and Italy are all on the side of the Roman Pope. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that this is like a real problem for any kind of negotiation or conversation between any of those countries. So Naples now can't really talk to the rest of Italy Um, and the Holy Roman Empire and France are now essentially in a state of tension because they both have a different Pope. Sure, that makes things complicated. Yeah, and then the popes start excommunicating each other, because why the fuck not? That's awkward, though, because then how do you really know who's been excommunicated? No one can make up their minds. Or rather, everyone can make up their minds, but none of them agree. I suppose if they're both legitimate popes and they both excommunicate each other, then they're both legitimately excommunicated? I guess so. It's complicated. It is. Yeah, so basically that goes on for about 40 years, that that as each one dies, it just keeps going. They keep having councils, like peace talks, where they Mm -hmm. try to work out who is the real Pope. But because of this sticky issue and the fact that neither of them want to back down, because as soon as it becomes like a conversation about, no, I'm the legitimate Pope, no, you're the legitimate Pope, no, I'm the legitimate Pope, no, you're excommunicated, then it becomes much harder to back down and Mm -hmm. you can't really save face at that point. So... They have a lot of kind of stalemate councils where everybody gets together and glares at each other. Although at one mm-hmm. point, the King of France did try to install a vice pope and then was just really horrible to the Avignon Pope because they didn't <laughs> like him and thought that if he was really horrible to him, he might resign. Again, a hostile work environment. <laughs> yeah, this isn't, this isn't any way to live. It's the kind of thing that if you were to write to like ask a manager or something, they would be like, "I'd be like, <laughs> my boss has installed somebody as my underling, and they both just plot against each other to be really horrible to me, and they delete all my emails before they get to me, and they won't let me talk <laughs> to anybody, and they have meetings and don't invite me. What should I do?" They'd be like, "Sue." Yeah. But. If you're the Pope in the 14th century, you don't really have that option. It's <laughs> a shame. And the Pope. To his, I don't know, his credit or his not credit, just refuses to back down. He's just like, fine, do what you like. I excommun- He doesn't excommunicate him, but he just like tells everybody to fuck. He just deals with it, basically. And then there's another council where they're trying to... Basically, in 1409, so this is 30 years after this is... This is 30 years of two popes and nobody agreeing who is the real pope. Mm-hmm. they have a council and just another guy decides that he's the pope sure so now they've got three and so now they've got three great again elected <laughs> semi-legitimately Ale- this is one's called alexander which is at least a different name and nobody really is massively keen on alexander as being a pope but he keeps going around insisting that he's the real pope basically his thing is if you can't agree then i'll just be the pope mm-hmm. essentially which is not great conflict resolution tactic (laughs) i mean that's true but to be fair no one has had good conflict resolution this entire time it's true i feel like his method is as good as anyone's i guess yeah it's a bold move and had it worked we would all be like good on you alexander the fifth you you was a bold 
tactic and we appreciate that that's what you tried unfortunately the two other popes just looked at him and were like nah (laughs) that's also fair enough yeah and so another for years that goes on for another six years and eventually in 1414 there is a council and i like i I say council and that makes it sound like it lasts for like a day everybody goes to a meeting and the council of constant lasted for two years it's too long (laughs) of just enough PowerPoint presentations in the world. <laughs> it's a good thing they hadn't invented PowerPoint in 14. <laughs> I feel like all of the popes would have really good, like, swiping and <laughs> starbursts. That rely too hard on the little laser pointers. <laughs> My presentation about why I am the real pope by <laughs> Benedict the 13th. Um, yeah so basically that's what they do but without the benefit of like gifts and cat pictures yeah so that goes on for ages and eventually two of them so alexander and the roman pope gregory both Mm -hmm. agree that they will step down and they're just like okay we'll step down and we'll elect a different one and that will be the legitimate pope and then we'll just sort of try to forget that this 40 years ever happened (laughs) Like, and that takes forever, but the Avignon Pope won't step down. He's like, nah, I'm the real Pope. You can't stop me, basically. But by that time, everybody is essentially so fed up. And because the Avignon Pope does have the weaker support, Mm -hmm. and because they're sort of fed up as well, (laughs) and they Uh won't, they basically, his, like, political support won't put up the fight, particularly. Sure. France on his behalf everybody signed of abandons him so he continues to insist that he is the Pope until he dies but everybody else says okay no we've moved on now yeah we're doing, so, a, diff- we're doing a different thing pal Just yeah Exactly. Like the other two have backed down and we're, we're all going to get together and elect uh, just a completely separate one Pope who will be the legitimate real Pope and then we'll move on. This is potentially why it is the Roman Popes that get to be the real Popes because the Roman Pope does step down and let another Pope get taken over. And also he was there first. Well, that's, that seems fair. That seems like how religion should work. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's basically how it works in the early ones. Like, when there is less communication across Europe in, like, the 7th, 8th century, and you have these fights between, basically, um, Mm city-states as to who is going to be the Pope, it is whoever gets there first. So you have things like, basically, who can get to the king first to say that they're the Pope. One of the earliest ones is Laurentius, who him and Symmachus are basically made Pope at the same time. And they all have a fight until the Italian king Theodoric intervenes and basically is whoever gets the letter to him first. I hope that at this point in history, like messengers are getting paid really well. (laughs) They've got to be exhausted. Yeah, I don't know. I hope that they, presumably they get some kind of fulfilment and pride from doing a job really well. <laughs> I don't know if that's enough. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever enough. <laughs> so, you know, being the first Pope is has a precedence in being the way that you decide who the real Pope is, basically. Sure. So, yeah, that's the Great Western Schism. Eventually everyone just gets really tired <laughs> and fed up and agrees that they'll just stop it and pick another one which is quite a good way to end a schism like it could have gone really badly it could have turned into a massive european war but everyone just gets worn out from the bitching (laughs) i mean we've all been there yeah 
So oh, the thing is that the kings of France and England and the Holy Roman emperors often have not been there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the like one of the I would say defining characteristics of like medieval and early modern kings is that they just don't get that worn out. <laughs> They're just really keen on fighting and They're bitching. They're always so gung ho. There's so drama. <laughs> They are just always sending letters to each other, being snide and marrying each other's sisters and then doing things like, oh, I've married her sister, but then she's been put in a castle that's not the best castle and I never go and visit her and therefore that's a reason for war. And then she writes to her brother and is like, oh my God, he's been so mean to me. And then they send some troops. Yeah. It's all family drama that just gets... And this is the building blocks of the civilization in which we now live. It's good, is it any wonder that is fucked? See, this is the thing that I always find really fun when people on the internet go, or in, like, newspapers, who are like, oh, modern political discourse, it's all gone so downhill. <laughs> like, at what point was it good? Like, yep. when is the blissful time of political discourse that you're looking at? Anyway, the Great Western Schism is kind of the end of anti-popes, though, because everyone gets so fed Tired? up. Tired? <laughs> Uh, like we, yeah. can't, we can't do this again. <laughs> like, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, there are a couple of other ones after that, but they're not very interesting, to be honest. And the last one is in 1439, which is real soon afterwards. And he does not last for very long. And is just a bit... Yeah, there's just not very exciting, basically. There's a couple of successors to Benedict XIII. But, yeah... That's the last one, 1439. There's not technically been an anti-pope since then. There are the ones that are in the Dan Brown novel. Um, oh, sure. And the Palmyran like, ones. He he is known for his accuracy <laughs> about all things. Yes. Basically, um, they are the Palmyran Catholic Church who appear in the most recent Dan Brown novel, which I've not read, but Oliver has read. And he tells me that it is like all good Dan Brown novels ridiculous but probably quite fun mm-hmm. I read the first line and was really disappointed that he had obviously taken on board the fact that everybody always laughs at him that the first line of his books is esteemed job title Peter <laughs> Brown walked across the high arching marble red room towards yep. the small red box yep yeah uh, I mean, if you've got your shtick, you've got your shtick. You don't don't fight it. Yeah. But no, his new book doesn't start like that. So I read like the first two sentences. Like, at no point have you described anybody as an esteemed whatever. Um, I didn't read any further. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. If he's going to move on from his shtick, I'm not interested. Ooh, that's completely reasonable. Yes. It's like he's personally betrayed you. It's <laughs> one artistic choice. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So basically the Palmyran, they're schismatic church in Spain who believe that the Pope in the 1970s as Pope Paul VI was the last true Pope. Mm -hmm. From what I can gather, and I confess I've not researched this massively, mostly because I got distracted by the American Catholics who have a much more sensationalist website and I'm easily distracted by sensation. (laughs) Basically, this Spanish bishop claims that Jesus visited him in a vision and told him that he was the Pope. Sure, that the office clerk was the Pope. Basically, he's like... 
the vision came to me uh, when Paul died and said I was the Pope and that the one who had been consecrated by or who had been elected mm-hmm. was not the real Pope and therefore I am the Pope, basically. And everyone was like, that is not how that works. <laughs> We have a whole thing where with the election situation. Yeah, we do smoke now. I don't know if you've noticed. (laughs) Yeah, we've been doing that for a couple of centuries now. And also, like, the only Pope, arguably, that you would say has been kind of crowned by Christ alone would be Peter. Uh, Mm -hmm. The St. Peter who is the Apostle. And so we're not... We we hear you, but are you sure? And also it's (laughs) 1978, like, we've kind of moved on from visions. (laughs) <laughs> visions are kind of out of fashion right now yeah it makes us uncomfortable and so he's basically been insisting that he is the true pope and then that his descendants are real popes and that the uh, pope in rome is the non-real pope so well, good luck to him in his all of his ventures i'm not um, sure how many, how many people he's got i hope that I mean, I say I hope. I presume that Origin coming out will give them a, the boost in popularity that perhaps they need. Mm-hmm. I mean, in comparison mm-hmm. to Francis, for example, the Palmyrian Catholics are not doing so great. Like, they're not, in terms of publicity and coverage and, you know, numbers, they're not doing as well. And also, he's not in any of the official lists. So. Which it does put a damper on things. Yeah. If you're trying to be. Yeah. These days, anyway, if you're going to be claiming that you are the true line of popes, then you need at least some newspapers to agree with you. Yeah. Like, just one. Just get one. (laughs) They've probably got their own. Like, everyone's got their own newspaper (laughs) these days. So you have people like that, but they're very small. And they, in comparison to things like the Great Western Schism or even the fights between the holy roman emperors and mm-hmm. the popes like which were big deals and people died and like little wars were had over them mm-hmm. what like a couple of guys in spain saying that they're the pope and like some lunatics with no web design skills in america <laughs> it's just not as much of a challenge to be honest yeah. But yeah, so that's the what's the deal is with anti-popes, you know. Turns out the deal is a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? It is good. Yeah. yeah. Every, so what the are we... thing with every story is that they're all the best story. <laughs> <laughs> like, as I was going through, my notes are covered in so many exclamation marks because I'm like, and then he excommunicated the Holy Roman Empire. Holy shit. <laughs> It's just an entire series of, if you thought that guy was buck wild, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wait, if you thought Boniface VII was good, wait till you meet Boniface VIII. <laughs> yeah. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. really, people are strange and chaotic and it's wonderful. And That's people my do... official stance on <laughs> People do a lot for power. I have to say a little bit of me admires the sheer I don't want to say balls but like the sheer sheer balls and confidence on like the amount of anti-popes that won't back down yeah with like no support to their name yeah or even like and then we'll go out and demand that people support them even like to the extent where everyone's like well 
none of us think that you're the real Pope and also we hate you and they're like, yeah, but I'm the Pope though. Uh, <laughs> like Boniface VII just spends all his time, like pretty much a, maybe a third of his life is spent insisting that he's the Pope and continually trying to get that Pope, continually murdering Popes in order to mm-hmm. to have that nice palace, basically. Well, he did he did the best he could, you know? He had a goal, he went for it. Yeah. And like Ervin IV, all of his cardinals abandon him and pretend that they're going on holiday and mm-hmm. uh, and then go and elect a new... A new- a new oh. head yeah like somebody yeah. else to lead them and i feel like if somebody did that to me i would be like oh oh i've done this really badly yeah and then everyone I would, hates me everyone hates me like genuinely they hate me <laughs> and then i would probably quit and then like he was a rich dude just go and live in a house somewhere by the sea and think about what i'd done yeah just have a nice time for the rest of your life yeah and i feel like a lot of people would go oh oh god this has gone wrong and then leave and he was like no no i'm the pope you can't be the pope what do you think you're doing i was here first you're excommunicated you're excommunicated and yeah i kind of admire the confidence of that response (laughs) (laughs) well that's anti-popes then that's anti-popes i hope that made you feel better It was it was it was very good way to spend a sickly a sickly evening. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. So what are we talking about next time? Next time we are gonna answer a listener question from somebody that we don't actually know, Ooh. which is new. It's somebody that we don't have to say. Our friend asked us. Uh, <laughs> it's from a real person without the suspicious real- sense that we um, have set them up. Um, and this is from somebody <laughs> called gaming poet who doesn't have his real name on twitter so i can't say what his real name is but he's gaming poet on twitter and he has asked the lie that people in the 15th century still believed that the fact that the earth was flat is commonly told what other oft-repeated fallacies do you come across this is gonna be a fun one we're gonna be talking about yeah historical fallacies means i get to talk about all of my favorite lies that people tell about history there's some excellent things that have been roundly debunked but are somehow still taught Um, yeah which is terrible and fascinating it is terrible and fascinating. So yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about in two weeks. Hopefully, so last week I was sick. This week we're both sick. So ideally next week, neither of us will be sick. Either that or we'll be dead. Oh. You know, in which case, I'm sorry, that- Gaming Poet, you'll never find out the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you have a question, then you can tweet it to us at SexyHistoryPod. Or you can email it to us. at uh, Which is SexyHistoryPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And you can, or I suppose you can talk to me and Janina, and I'm at Nuclear T. And I am at J9 and If. And our editor is not on Twitter anymore, but he's Oliver Keeley, but he left us. So <laughs> now we have to text him instead. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what the deal is with Antipope. Yeah. Bye, Janina. Bye, Emma. Bye.